Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Knowledge Podcast brought to you by the Wahoo Sports Science team in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Neil Henderson, head of Wahoo Sports Science. And I'm Matt Kasson, senior sports scientist with Wahoo. Today we're going to be following up on our first episode on fueling where we talked about pre-training nutrition strategies. Right now we're going to be talking about fueling during training. As we've previously mentioned, we are not dietitians, and if you have specific needs or medical concerns, you should always seek the advice of a registered dietitian to help you meet your goals. So, Neil, how do you define fueling when you're training? Well, basically, I think of the, the combination of anything you're eating and drinking while you're working out or training as pretty much covering that during exercise, during training, fueling. And so if we talk about that, we probably can break it up into a few different components, like the composition of the food you should be eating, the factors that go into planning that fueling, and then just general timing, when and how much you should be eating. Definitely. Those are pretty much the, the three biggies there. Let's start with the top of the list here. We often think about fluids. You know, we've got lots of evidence out there that hydration is important and it's one of the better ways that we can get some of the fuels and other things that we need into our bodies like electrolytes. What do you tell me about fluids here? Well, isn't that, isn't that what Gatorade is for? Isn't Gatorade the best thing ever for that? Well, you know, it, it is something. It's very well marketed and there are a lot of other options out there. So, you know, water is, is uh, the base fluid, right? And then we can add things to it. So the primary things that we would add to water to make it more useful for while we're training would be carbohydrate because carbohydrate energy is what we use, uh, especially with higher intensity exercise. And it's the only kind of fuel that our body really has a, a big or significant limitation in being able to store. And then we also have some need for electrolytes because that actually has an impact on how our body is able to take in that fluid with sodium being probably one of the biggest players there. There may be some need for other electrolytes, but I would stick to sodium probably being the key one there. Yeah, definitely. Sodium is going to help with moving fluid into your intestines. It also actually is, is responsible for one of the, the transporters in your gut to help bring glucose into your bloodstream. So you actually need sodium for some of those pumps to work efficiently. So even if you just have, if you have nothing but sugar in your drink, you're not going to be absorbing it as well as if you had a bit of sodium in there. Yep. And the combination of all the particles that are in a fluid is what we call osmolarity. And so it's the combination of that glucose and sodium and any of the other potential electrolytes in there. Those total particles per liter of fluid is what impacts osmolarity, which you can use a couple different ways to describe whether a fluid that you have is either equal in concentration of those particles to what we have in our normal cells in our body, like our blood cells. And that's an isotonic where it's equal. You can have a hypertonic solution where then there are more particles in the amount of fluid relative to what your body has. And then there's a hypotonic solution where there are less of those particles. Generally speaking, our body does a little bit better with an isotonic intake. And so if you pump up the amount of carbohydrate particles that you have in there, you might need to pull back a little bit on the sodium and vice versa. If you have a fairly high sodium concentration in, in, of those particles, you may need to pull back a little bit on the amount of carbohydrate to keep it to being an isotonic solution. Yeah, and that's a that's an important thing to to think about when you're exercising in terms of what you're taking in because like you said, the hypertonic it's when you have a higher concentration of of particles in the fluid or even in the food you take, because once you eat it, it turns into fluid and 
in your stomach. But if you have a hypertonic mass of carbohydrate in your intestines, it's actually going to draw water out of your intestines to make it balance what's in your cells. If you've ever been someone to have a gel and all of a sudden you, your stomach just feels like you have a big old bomb dropped in there, it's probably because that was a hypotonic intake and now your intestines is push, dumping water into to even that out. So having a, an appropriate balance is important. Typically, we see somewhere around a 6 or 8% carbohydrate solution, as well as then somewhere between 400 and 800 milligrams of sodium ending up with an isotonic solution. There's a little bit of variability for sure in those values. And what we think about then is how much of each of those two things do we really need in terms of for the amount of fluid that we lose. So when we, when we exercise, we sweat. We are losing some amount of fluid, and it varies based on a few things. What, what are the key things, Mac, that you consider important for the hydration and, and understanding how much your body is losing in terms of fluids and sweat during exercise? Yeah, so in, environment's going to play a big, big factor there, right? When it's really hot out, you're going to be sweating more. But even if it's it's cold out and you're wearing a lot of layers, you can be sweating more than you think, especially if when it's colder, you tend to drink less. So you can actually get into dehydrated in really cold weather, which can be counterintuitive to some people. But yeah, what you really need to consider is your own individual sweat rate. I think personally, my sweat rate is on the high excessive side of things. Um, that So I know when I'm training, I need to drink a lot of fluid. Um, I remember in 2012, nationals in... Augusta, Georgia. It was like 1 p.m. in the afternoon. It was like 102 degrees, like 95% humidity. Brutal. I drank 17 bottles in four hours and 10 minutes because it was. I was just sweating, dripping sweat the whole time. And I wouldn't even be shocked if you said you were actually dehydrated after even drinking all of that in, in four hours, that that's actually probably not enough to keep up with your total loss. Yeah, I was literally just limited by how frequently we were passing the two different feed zones and how many bottles I could grab each time. Yeah, a good thing that you can do to just get an idea of your actual sweat loss for fluid is to measure, you know, get your body weight before you go out in training. You know, this is ideally done, you know, without any clothes on because clothes can carry some of that water. So you want to do, you know, a without clothes first before you ride, you know, don't do it anywhere where you're going to get in trouble doing so. So better in your bathroom at home, um, but weigh yourself before no clothes, go out and do your training, write down how much you actually drink and then weigh yourself when you come back inside again, nothing on, and compare the total change in body weight plus the amount of fluid that you take in. And that's going to give you then that total change in fluid from start to finish. And if you divide that, say, in liters by the hours of your training session, you're going to have an idea of how many liters per hour you sweat. And so historically, it's been said that if you have a 2% drop in body weight, you're dehydrated. Do you think that's accurate? It's not necessarily true. One of the reasons is that when we're exercising, especially with a higher intensity, we are utilizing carbohydrate. And when we think about tapping into our stored carbohydrate, which we recall is called glycogen, which carries with it nearly three grams of water. Some would say three. Or 2.8. Uh, some say 2.7, but nearly three grams of water. So if you actually deplete your entire carbohydrate reserves, which will be, you know, depending on your size, four to 500 grams of the, the stored carbohydrate, you're also then getting rid of or not, your body does not need those additional, we'll say 1,200 to 1,500 
grams of water. So that total is between 1.8 and 2 kilograms. Right. And if you weigh under 100 kilos, that's 2%. That's 2% right there. So keep in mind that that fluid loss is different than your actual sweat rate, even though you may have some of that fluid coming out um, net as, as sweat. It, yeah, it really acts as a good buffer in that your sweat comes from the plasma in your blood. And as you release the glycogen in the water there, it circulates back into your blood. So for a while, you can get a pretty good balance there. But then still there'll be, yeah, your sweat rate is going to vary based on those things. And a good thing to remember as well is exercising inside. You can have higher sweat rates if you don't have adequate cooling. That's why fans are really important for working out on the trainer. Go, Matt, go. Oh, you, oh, you mean air. Well, both. They both help. Yeah, it does help for sure. Keeps you cooler. And then so, okay, so we're talking about sweat. That's water loss. But what else? I mean, I think we all know that sweat's a bit salty. So what is? Yeah, there's some individual things with how much sodium we lose. There's, there's an impact on your diet. If you have a really high sodium diet, generally, you will lose more sodium than somebody who has a, a lower sodium diet in their in their intake but you know that the range can be anywhere you know around 400 milligrams of sweat per liter to somebody can be losing in excess of 2000 grams of sodium per liter of sweat that is very very salty um 2000 milligrams oh sorry 2000 milligrams yeah 2000 grams that would be bad <laughs> i don't think a human has 2000 grams of salt in us in every place but so 2000 milligrams or two grams sorry great catch mac with with that, though, the, the range is significant, and it is important to do a little bit of experimentation uh, with yourself. There are some places where you can actually analyze the composition of your sweat and see how much, how many milligrams there were per liter. It's, it's you know, great to be able to get that identified, but do also know that it varies. So when you're less acclimatized to a given condition, so like if we think of, you know, our winter here in Boulder, it's a little bit cooler, you know, and maybe in March or April, more likely we get a first warm day and you go out and your sweat in April looks most likely very different than what your sweat rate would have been at the end of the summer in August or September because you haven't been sweating at that higher rate. And so you'll have a little more concentration of sodium in that sweat when you're not acclimatized. As you become acclimated and, and train in the heat, you'll see a little bit of a decrease and lose less sodium per liter of sweat. Yeah, if you're someone who, when you finish a hot ride and you've got lots of white stains on your jersey from salt, it means you're probably a, a high salt sweater. I'm, I'm fortunate that even though I do sweat a lot, I have a very, very low amount of sodium in that sweat. So, Yeah, I kind of get ghosty myself. So I, I, I have to do both a, a pretty high volume of fluid intake and a relatively high sodium. So I usually think about 800 milligrams when I'm pretty well acclimatized to heat, but early season, that might be in excess of a thousand milligrams per liter to kind of keep up with what I'm losing and not get into trouble. Because there's a condition if you have too much of a loss of sodium or you take in too much water without enough sodium, and the, that is called hyponatremia. And it actually is a very dangerous medical condition. You can, well, I mean, you can, you can lose consciousness and you can die, actually, if, if you uh, sustain and get to an extreme level of hyponatremia, so low 
blood sodium. Yeah, there have been lots of reported cases of people dying from drinking only water and drinking too much of it, which is counterintuitive a lot. But again, that just drives home the importance of those electrolytes that we were talking about. Yep. And a good indication I find is if you're if you're training and you're drinking a fair amount of fluid and you feel like all of a sudden you're kind of getting that sloshing in your stomach, you most likely don't have enough sodium to help move that fluid through your system. And so taking in some salty foods, whether that's, you know, potato chips or pretzels or beef jerky or, you know, of course there's salt tablets and stuff like that, but getting some salty foods will help that fluid be able to move out and move out of your stomach and help you stay cooler so you can continue to sweat and keep your blood sodium in that kind of narrowly regulated range. Yeah. So on that note of, you know, that liquid sloshing around in your stomach, we touched on this briefly in the first episode on this, but you know, when you start exercising, your blood moves away from your intestines and moves towards your working muscles. So your what's called gastric emptying is going to be slower. And so if you drink a lot of fluid in one go, that can be bad. Same thing with if you eat a lot at one time. So that's why we'd say in terms of timing, we'd say, you know, sip every five to 10 minutes and eat something like a little bit of something every 15 to 20 minutes. It's better to do that than to try and, you know, have an entire bottle in one go or have an entire, you know, cliff bar in one go, breaking it up. And on that note, it's the same like we were talking about in the first episode of composition of food you should be having here should be primarily be carbohydrate and you should really limit that fat and fiber content around it because that slows down your gastric emptying it you won't be able to digest stuff as quickly what about uh the the aspects of the carbohydrate type um number one if we think about the glycemic index is that a a factor here Yes, it is. And and again, we have glycemic index, which is, you know, how much does something spike your blood sugar? And then the glycemic load, which is proportional to how much you take in. And really what you want when you're on the bike is just super high glycemic index with a super high glycemic load. It's the one time you can kind of go crazy with the sugar and not be detrimental to your health. Yep. So like having some uh, defizzed Coke while you're riding might, might be a good fuel if you're definitely looking for a higher energy density. Mm-hmm. For um, those who don't know, Neil has run a, a Wednesday group ride with his athletes in town, and every once in a while we do simulated races, and the winner of each one gets a nice cold Mexico, so real sugar Coca-Cola, and those are some of the best Cokes I think I've had. Definitely, which means Mac has won some of those challenges to be able to earn earn the glass bottle Coke, man. He, is, uh, he, he, he can throw down and has many times, <laughs> earning it. So what about then the the different carbohydrate types? So if you kind of break it down, is is there some value in in varying that or just is it better to have just straight up glucose? Yeah. So what you um, glucose is the standard one, but actually the different sugars use different transporters in your gut and they're limited to how much they can move. Generally, the accepted stuff is you can most people on average can move 60 grams of glucose and galactose. They use the same transporter per hour. And then for fructose, you actually have different transporters that can do about 30 an hour. So mixing that up means you can increase the total number, but twice the amount of glucose per amount of fructose. Yeah. Like a two to one ratio on that. Yeah, exactly. And what's, what's interesting is it's that number of how much you can ingest has been steadily going up over the last couple of decades. A while ago, like 60 was the absolute max you could take. Oh yeah. When I was in school, you know, when I was in undergrad, it was 40 to 60 grams. That's the most uh, that you think about recommending for anyone to intake. And I was doing some ultra endurance stuff. I mean, I did my first Ironman when I was still in undergrad and I 
guarantee I was taking in more than that because I know my expenditure was significantly above that. So why, how did that work? So it turns out your gut, like most other parts of your body, you can actually train. If you constantly bombard your intestines with lots of sugar when you're exercising, you're going to upregulate those transporters and you're going to be able to take in more carbohydrate. Like when I was in uh, undergrad, the recommendation was around 90 and now it's pushing up around 120 plus. And again, it depends. Part of that is obviously there's a caveat to your size. If you're a 45 kilo woman versus a hundred kilo man, like there's a bit of difference in surface area of your intestines. So yep, the larger person's going to absorb more. Also the energy expenditure that somebody who's 45 kilo is going to be sustaining. You know, if they're pushing, you know, if both of those folks are, are pushing, let's just say three watts per kilo, that, that 45 watt. Uh, 45 kilo person is pushing about 135, 135 watts versus that 100 kilo guys pushing 300 watts. And the absolute energy then is a, a very significant difference. That's more than a twofold difference in that energy production. So the amount of intake should also be relative to your size and, and your output capacity. So we could have two people who weigh the same that are, you know, 75 kilos, but one has a sustainable power of closer to 300 watts. And another one has closer to 200 watts. The demand of intake for that person who can hold and push 300 watts for a long period of time is going to definitely need more fuel than the person who's pushing just 200 watts. Yeah. And even just the relative intensity there is, is a factor as intensity increases, you use proportionately more carbohydrate. So if you're just doing you might have one person doing a mellow ride at 200 watts, and then you might have same person, same weight, but 200 watts is their threshold, and they both ride for an hour, though their output is essentially, there's some difference for fat and carbohydrate burn, but we won't get into that. Their output is essentially the same, but that rider who has a higher FTP was using maybe 50% fat during that, so they'd have less carbohydrate expenditure. So that is an important thing to think about when you're planning out your fueling for a given ride is what's your absolute intensity and then what is that relative to your ability if you have a hard high intensity session you're probably going to want to be pretty heavy on the the carbohydrates yep and and clearly there's some individual variation um in in how people are metabolizing fuels at different intensities but a, a, a pretty good ballpark for most folks is at a, a relatively low intensity kind of like endurance pace most folks are burning closer to a 50-50 mix of carbohydrate and fat. When we get into a kind of moderate intensity into that tempo range, most are getting closer to around three quarters carbohydrate, 25% fat. And when we get up to basically our FTP or threshold intensity and above, it's almost exclusively carbohydrate. 100% of all that energy that you burn then is carbohydrate when you're at those intensities and above. So you have to think about the total amount of watts that you're pushing or calories per hour is a, a relation to that. And then the relative intensity that you're going is going to dictate. So if you're going on a low intensity ride, your need for carbohydrate is going to be a little bit less than when it is when you're working on a higher intensity. Even if it's a short high intensity session, you could potentially need a significantly greater amount of carbohydrate than you would in a really long ride if it's really low intensity. And when we were talking about duration, it's also important to note that, you know, the time between eating something and it actually hitting your bloodstream can be about 60 to 90 minutes. So there's the old adage of eat when you're hungry. That's not necessarily going to be a good, good advice. Yeah. Have a plan and, and stay ahead of the curve. You don't, you don't want to be playing catch up and especially, so that's with fueling, you know, you, you get that feeling of low blood sugar. You know, interestingly, we now see some things on the market to actually be monitoring your blood glucose level continuously during exercise. So the, the CGIs um, are, are out 
out there and I'd say they're getting, you know, to be seen a little bit more. It might be interesting for folks to, to see how their body responds to different fuels and different intensities and what happens there. We are all a little bit different and I'd say we're probably learning a little bit more about this fueling from some of that information that we're gathering right now. I'd say, you know, check back next year. We'll know even more than we know right now. But there's also the aspect of your your fluid, too. And if you get a little bit dehydrated, it actually will slow then your gastric emptying rate. So it's really hard to catch up. Your your blood glucose, you can rebound pretty quickly. If you do get low and you, you have an intake, you know, within, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you can feel a lot better. If you get dehydrated for a little bit, you might take a couple hours till you start to feel better. So it's better to always avoid getting into any level of true dehydration while you're out there training or especially when you're racing too, if you're doing long stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just just quick rapid fire here. The other things you want to consider for your nutrition for a single day is, okay, did you have a good pre-ride meal? If you don't know what that is, you can listen to the first episode in this series. And so if you had a good meal, you might not need to start fueling right away. If you didn't eat anything, you're just straight up out of the bed. You might need to have something as soon as you get on the bike. The training the day before, which is impacted by your post-workout recovery, which we'll talk about next episode. But if you're not properly fueled after your previous day's workout, you might be low on glycogen. So you might need to add some more fueling in. And then another big one is what are you doing the day after? Are you doing another big ride, hard ride tomorrow? Or is it a rest day? Because that can have some impact there. And I think... Again, when we talk about that delay of 60 to 90 minutes, I've heard a lot of people, when you see a rider in the tour in a sprint stage, they're taking a gel with like 5K to go. And some people have been like, well, why are they doing that? It's not going to hit their system. And it's it's not really for that sprint finish. It's to make sure that they've got food going into their system for the next stage. Yep, they're starting that recovery. Also, there is some interesting evidence about a little bit of carbohydrate in your mouth actually giving you a psychological capacity to do a little more work than if you didn't. So, you know, just getting a little shot of a sports drink or a gel in your mouth may actually make you feel like you can do a little bit more and actually have a little bit more output. So, you know, potentially a benefit there. And you may even be starting your recovery. Second benefit. That's a two for one I'll take. And so I think nutrition is very individual and what works for you isn't necessarily going to work for someone else. So it's important to experiment with different strategies here. Now, you don't want to do that on your event day. You don't want to spend six months prepping for something and then try something brand new day of the event. You definitely, want to definitely, definitely nothing new on race day. You want to take some lower intensity, lower priority training sessions and try some different different fueling stuff and see what see what works for you. Yep. And maybe start off at, you know, with some lower intensity sessions first and then slowly try to add, you know, some higher intensity and see how you tolerate that because you may find certain things work when you're just doing, you know, endurance type work or a or little bit of tempo. But when you're doing high intensity intervals, that same type of fueling strategy or, or actual food or drink just doesn't work for you. So make sure you know how your body's going to respond at those variations in intensity too. So hopefully this is some good fuel for your brain. Definitely. I, I, I feel like my brain knows more and now I can feed my stomach the right things based on what I know. All right. Well, that's another episode of The Knowledge. Again, this is part two of our our fueling talk. We In in episode one, we talked about your pre-training fueling needs and and how to go about making sure that you're starting sessions well-fueled. This one, we tapped into the what do you need to do about food and fuel during exercise. And next up, we will be talking about after your training, how to optimize your recovery with your nutrition strategies there. 